Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Elix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. So Zevin, thanks for joining us today for our um, BIOS podcast. Um, do you mind giving us a little background on Lux and what your investment focus is? Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, Lux, we are an early stage venture capital firm, about 2.5 billion under management, split by coastal. Uh, not that that matters during this COVID era, but the majority of the team is split between San Francisco and New York. Um, all of us invest at this point essentially globally the vast majority of our investments are in uh are, are in the us and um you know really how to think about us is is i would say kind of a leading deep tech firm in 2014 when i joined deep tech was a little bit of a dirty word uh, i think the vast majority of at least the valley and then even the, the broader kind of venture ecosystem was still uh very much so focused rightfully so in many ways on consumer mobile and enterprise SaaS. Uh, over time, that's obviously shifted, uh, both in terms of where entrepreneurs are spending their time, but then also where capital markets are uh, seeking to allocate uh, investment and capital. And uh, and I think at Lux, we've, we have about two decades of track record and history uh, investing across all stages uh, uh, of companies. Uh, so it's really seed, series A, series B, series C. Um, I think we're going to maybe talk about Thrive Detect, and we really came into that for the first time in the crossover round, so very much so a later stage growth round, uh, too. Um, and then we'll also start companies, de novo, from scratch, and that's really premised on my partners and I reading the primary literature, having relationships across the leading academic institutions, across the leading research institutions, and when and if we do find particular pieces of science that are on the chasm of crossing research to commercialization and industry, we can roll up our sleeves and be essentially founding partners and uh, founding investors next to really exciting kind of entrepreneurial scientists. Excellent, fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, you started your career off as a computer scientist and founder before switching over to VC pretty early on. Can you give some color on your career arc and why you chose to eventually pursue both sides of entrepreneurship, both fund founding as well as investing? It's such a good question. And it, it's something that I, I kind of think back to quite a bit these days. Uh, in retrospect, it's easy to, to kind of paint a narrative that explains everything as kind of rationally driven with an a priori sense of what the future would look like. I think in the moment, all of these things were very serendipitous. Um, I was just forwarding an old email thread to, um, to friends of mine yesterday post the Coinbase uh, listing. And, uh, and in 2013, I was on an email thread with Fred and Brian, essentially interviewing with them for the, uh, I think it would have been the fifth employee at Coinbase. And, um, and ultimately decided to say no and thought about starting a Bitcoin company and, and, and somewhat serendipitously ended up in venture. But, but the long and the short is, you know, I, I came out of undergrad and grad in computer science and philosophy from Stanford and you know, undergrad 2010, grad school 2012, 
And it was right when I think the Valley was really starting to appreciate the potential for machine learning. And at least at that point, quote unquote, big data to have massive impacts, not only on the software industry, but also um, increasingly over time to be able to integrate over all other industries. Um, and uh, uh, that was, a, a, in retrospect, I don't know if anyone really realized, at least I, I, I frankly didn't really realize how powerful that moment in time was. Uh, but um, but it's obviously been um, been really interesting. I, I would say just to to look back at. Um, I started my career at a search engine startup. Uh, this was 2010 to 2013. A bunch of the smartest people, frankly, that I've ever worked with. Still, uh, I joke that the the guy I pair programmed with now back then is the global SVP of AI for GSK. Uh, and it's just, uh, I think it's a recurrent theme in at least my career to have found myself in these small groups of people in these small rooms of people working on really kind of at least at the time, seemingly bespoke or esoteric pieces of science or technology, but that would ultimately have massive impact, um, both across industry, uh, but then also kind of watching those people's careers kind of develop. Uh, so that search engine was acquired by Twitter. I thought about then starting a Bitcoin company, which was where the Coinbase overlap happened. And while pitching the Bitcoin company to Silicon Valley venture investors, one of the venture investors I met was Innovation Endeavors. And they essentially said, look, it looks like you're really interested in this crypto thing, but it looks like you have a lot of broad and varied interests. And given kind of the Stanford background and uh, relationships and network, you, you likely have contacts and ins to the sorts of entrepreneurs that we want to be funding. How about you come and join us uh, and invest for us? At that point, Innovation Endeavors was essentially Eric Schmidt's seed and series A play shop. At this point, it's very much so, you know, uh, institutionalized and raised uh, money from proper LPs. But at least at that point, it was, uh, it was solely Eric's money. Uh, and Eric was himself at that point, taking a step back from active management of Google and Alphabet and more so kind of transitioning into becoming a global technology evangelist. And so he wanted exposure to the sorts of technologies and sciences that would be increasingly important on a seven to almost 15 year horizon. Uh, so really kind of long window and uh, the ability to kind of invest with time arbitrage uh, above and beyond where other venture investors were spending their time. Um, Frankly, I hadn't ever thought about venture as a career until that very serendipitous conversation. And to be honest, I'm not even sure I knew 100% what a venture capital firm was or how it was set up or what it would look like to get in. Uh, you know, I think this isn't, this isn't necessarily the case anymore, but 2010, 2011, 2012, the vast majority of venture firms were pale male, stale and white. And I say that with all the love in the world, but it really was, you know, uh, that, that rhymes pretty well. Did you rehearse that? The, the, it, it, my partner, Josh Wolf, I think maybe coined it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think there are many industries that look and feel like that. Um, and so, you know, having the opportunity to join a venture firm at, at that point felt like an interesting, unique thing. Frankly, I probably thought I would be there for about six months. And uh, maybe three months in, I realized it was fundamentally changing uh, the way I was viewing the world. It was exposing me to all sorts of interesting and eclectic conversations and entrepreneurs across industries and markets and various scientific domains that I would have never otherwise had access to. 
um, and really quickly caught the bug. I happen to have also made a few of my best friends now then, including I think Nan Lee, who the two of you interviewed maybe a few months back on, on this exact podcast. Uh, he's now you know, a, a GP at Obvious Ventures, uh, but another really good friend of mine that I made in those early days of venture was a, was a guy, Adam Goldberg, who's now one of my partners at Lux. And he was at Lux and living in New York, I was at Innovation living in San Francisco. And whenever he was on the West Coast or whenever I was on the East Coast, would hang out, we'd grab a meal, we'd grab a drink and kind of you know, shoot the shit about what we were seeing, technology and, 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 and science trends and try to find ways to partner and collaborate together um, in Lux. At that point, it was, it was a much smaller firm. I think we had maybe about 350 million under management. Uh, so essentially a, a tenth of the AUM that we're at today. But in Lux, I saw a really hungry and audacious and aggressive and intellectually capable team that was willing to take a high degree of technological and scientific risk if the upside on the other side of success for those risks was worth it. Uh, and I, I say this quite honestly, sadly, that's not always the case in venture anymore. Uh, and, and especially in, in 2013, 2014, 2015, that was exceptionally rare. Uh, so, you know, one thing led to another, but um, I, did a, I did end up joining Lux in 2014 uh, and have been at the firm since, and it's, it's been a wild and, and, and really exciting uh, six plus years. I, I still wake up every, most mornings and pinch myself that, that this is something that I mean, all of us, kind of the partners at Lux now are, 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 are paid to do, but it's, um, it, it, it's, it's, an, it's an absolute dream. Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing, Zavin. And, and Zavin, as we talk about your career arc and a little bit deeper there, we'd love to learn about your investment philosophy. You spent a lot of time thinking about the intersection of philosophy and venture. Can you explain more about this and what that means to you? You know, it's such, it's, a, it's a really good question. Uh, and I was thinking about this heading into the podcast because you, a lot of people often ask, hey, Zav, you know, you're, you, you studied both computer science and philosophy and your, uh, you know, your investments tend to mirror a little bit of both, but you know, what mindsets or what toolkits from computer science and philosophy do you find using or are most helpful at your disposal as a VC? And, um, you know, as a computer scientist, you know, I, I, I fundamentally think one of the biggest things that computer science teaches, and I'm not sure if, 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 if you guys are familiar with this kind of um, vernacular, but it's called big O notation or O of N notation. And it's really about um, not confusing false precision at the cost of accuracy. And it's about thinking in terms of orders of magnitude, both in terms of the size of the data or the markets or, 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 or that you're working in, but then also in the functional growth of what things could become if they work. Um, and often, especially for kind of, a, you know, new venture capitalists, I think there's a tendency to almost over diligence and confuse precision with accuracy. And, and, and one of the biggest, uh, you know, again, one of the, one of the lessons from at least, um, theoretical computer science is to avoid that and to think about both functional growth, but then also, uh, you know, sizes of, of, of discrete domains in terms of, you know, uh, orders of magnitude uh, or, or big O. Um, on the philosophy side, and, and quite frankly, philosophy is such a unique um, background and an interesting uh, skill set to have been trained in because you're 
forced to at all moments in time have a very acute articulation of what your mental models are, what you're basing those assumptions on, and then based on streaming incoming data, you're forced to either double down on your conviction and or forced to be mentally agile and update your priors and update your models. Um, and that is, that almost sounds maybe like what a statistician, uh, the way that a statistician would think about the world too, but it's quite frankly, it's, 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 it's very much so the way that Western analytic philosophers uh, think, especially over the last probably two centuries or so. Uh, so my, my philosophy training was in metaphysics and philosophy of language, but one of the really neat things to see, especially now, is actually how even the philosophy language of language uh, uh, side of analytic philosophy is intersecting with natural language processing, where we're suddenly now at moments in time where we have uh, the abilities to take philosophical theories and test them empirically with with essentially transformer models and NLP and modern kind of deep neural nets. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's a little bit of a garbled response admittedly, but I, I see the distinction between philosophy and computer science increasingly uh, melting before us and both of them being excellent, I would say training grounds for budding investors uh, and, and of course also venture capitalists. So as we dive a little bit deeper into kind of investment philosophy, I think there's a, a newly coined term that is tech bio and this definition, I think is a little bit fuzzy to some people. What does tech bio mean to you and to Lux? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if we, if we use that term or, or, or if I subscribe to that term, I will say again, in, 2014 and 15 when we started investing in earnest at this intersection and and I described this intersection as three things broadly one is leveraging all of the fantastic and really beautiful advancements and maturations across molecular bio and biochem and that includes the Moore's law like decreasing costs of sequencing and synthesizing but then also the increasing fidelity and precision of various toolkits like CRISPR-Cas9 or, um, or DNA encoded uh, uh, mechanisms to, to essentially make high throughput various assays that historically weren't. Um, it leverages the life sciences and the biology. It couples them with automation to create data at a size and scale that becomes redundant beyond the um, stochiastic noise inherent in biology and chemistry. And then on top of that, it couples and integrates both blocking and tackling software, blocking and tackling data science, but then also cutting edge machine learning uh, uh, and AI. And oftentimes that last bit, the cutting edge machine learning and AI gets a lot of the attention. It grabs the headlines, but it's really the entire, it, it, it's really almost the icing on the cake, the, you know, the, this domain is only interesting because we're at a moment in time where we can integrate across the life sciences, across the automation stack, across, frankly, the software stack. And then finally, across all of that, apply layers of data science, machine learning, and AI. 
Um, and so maybe, maybe that's what tech bio means. When we started investing in earnest a few years back, two interesting things happened. One, the traditional biotech investors, um, largely on the East Coast in, in Cambridge or in Boston, scoffed, quite frankly, what we were doing. Um, they'd been burned in the past, in the 90s and early 2000s. There were attempts to throw supercomputers uh, at, uh, at either protein folding or at, uh, uh, or, 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 or at chemistry uh, with, with CombiCam. Um, and those had largely failed. And so I think there was a little bit of historical uh, uh, scar tissue, which had um, cult culturally manifested uh, a reticence to be open-minded about how technology was evolving. So there was um, scoffing from the East Coast biotech funds. And then there was um, somewhere between a lack of interest to, um, to a, oh, this is just too complex and there's more, more money to be made in enterprise SaaS and consumer software from the vast majority of the Silicon Valley firms. So we really did find ourselves in no man's land uh, for a few years. And looking back, I think, you know, that the 2014 through 2018 investing that we did in this space is going to be historically good uh, because there was very little competition from at least the venture perspective, and because the sciences and the technologies were so ripe. Over time now, I, I, I can tell you, you know, every, every week we have firms from, you know, the biotech firms from the East Coast and the technology firms from Sandhill approaching us saying for the biotech firms, hey, tell us about technology and machine learning and how are you building these companies? Uh, you know, how do the underlying kind of core uh, KPIs change and how should we assemble our management teams to take advantage of software and machine learning? And then we have the Valley firms approaching us saying they want to get more exposure and they have increasing appetite and interest to invest in biotech uh, or tech bio, uh, but they're not sure if they have the, uh, 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 you know, the, the understanding and the wherewithal to really understand how to build businesses there. Uh, and so I don't say it facetiously and, and certainly not in a pejorative way, but I think we have uh, budding partners on both sides now. Uh, which is really exciting. You know, I think it's a fantastic time to be an entrepreneur now because almost every venture firm is interested and excited and at least experimenting in this space. Um, and it's uh, and, and maybe maybe using increasing excitement from early stage technology VCs is a good proxy for that transition from biotech to tech bio. And as you see kind of the influx of interest in the space, can you talk about differentiating from, from signal and noise and how does, uh, how do you kind of as an investor come with a prepared mindset in that? There is so much. Um, uh, there, and, and, and I think especially whenever you're investing in deep tech, uh, which is, you know, really where we spend the vast majority of our time at Lux, having a, um, having a strong ability to ward off FOMO because these companies, whether they're in biotech or tech bio or self-driving in AV or space and satellites or 3D printing, they require prepared minds. They require a, uh, you know, a pretty thorough understanding, not only of the technology and the sciences, but then also equally as important and sometimes even more rare an understanding of how to accrue and build value as a business in these verticals. Um, and so, 
you know, there, there's no formulaic checklist uh, uh, of what questions we ask or what questions I ask when, when talking to new companies. But I, I will say the companies that we get most excited about tend to be intersectional. They tend to have experts from across a wide variety of domains, at least in the tech bio or biotech side, they tend to have somebody or someone who has, um, who has world-class expertise in, 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 under, in an underlying life science uh, discipline and someone who has world-class expertise in an underlying computational discipline and someone who sees or can posit and explicate with a clear and cogent mind how a large enterprise will be built, intersecting the, the underlying disciplines. And finding those three skills is often really difficult and really hard. And oftentimes we get one or maybe two of those, but rarely do we find all three at the same time. And when we do find all three at the same time, those tend to be the opportunities where we have the most conviction, the teams that we you know, really kind of rally the troops behind and, and, and where we end up uh, you know, in, investing significant sums of capital. Um, it, it can come from single person teams. It can come from two or three or four person founding teams. Uh, so it's not to say that it needs to be you know, distinct people, but those are certainly the skill sets that we look for when we're interrogating and exploring new companies and, and, and new investment opportunities. So Zavan, as you're talking about diving through uh, signal and noise, can, can you talk about kind of just how did you first get started in the space and kind of what's the evolution of your portfolio? Yeah, uh, uh, of course. So, you know, this was again, 20, 13 at innovation where we we made a um, a firm wide bet that we were going to spend time in at least at that point you know what was dubbed computational genomics and synthetic biology uh, and, and and really wanted to kind of understand and explore the space no one on the team really had expertise or background uh, but I, I kind of raised my hand and said okay I'll, I'll take this on and we'll go we'll go invest here um, and one of the first companies that we were really fortunate to meet, was a company Zymergen, uh, where uh, at least at the time it was three uh, uh, co-founders, uh, Josh, Jed, and Zach, uh, uh, who had spun out of Amaris and McKinsey and wanted to build what they maybe playfully at that time would have dubbed what Amaris should have been. Uh, and it was um, kind of integrating automation and machine learning into the design of microbes to produce uh, high-value, uh, uh, novel uh, products uh, for for, uh, for humans. Um, looking back at the company's success today, I don't think there's any way we could have foretold that 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 founding team would have gone on to do what they're doing. Um, and, nor could we have foretold exactly why they would be successful. In so many ways, and again, this is such a common theme. In, in my own professional career is it's, there's a vast, there's a large amount of luck. And I think early success in Zymergen's story galvanized and excited, at least me to spend more time saying, wow, okay, it, it turns out that if you apply automation and machine learning into the question of engineering microbes to produce novel materials, maybe you can apply automation and machine learning to, uh, to perturb biology to look for novel targets for therapeutics. Maybe you can apply automation and machine learning 
to explore chemical space to create new small molecules against historically undruggable targets. Um, maybe you can apply automation and machine learning to fundamentally create entirely novel microbes to themselves evolve and define and, and create novel proteins against historically undruggable targets. That, that kind of meta problem lent itself again and again to really interesting spaces in in life sciences across both industrial biotech and then of course also therapeutic biopharma, uh, 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 it, it lent itself as as a mental model to to both create new companies, but then also to invest in new companies. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think venture is a is a great industry where success begets future success, and the investment in Zymogen and the success in the early days of that investment led to more excitement, led to doubling down, led to me spending many of my nights and weekends over the last seven or eight years reading uh, primary literature ac across biology and chemistry, which yeah, again, in high school or college or, or grad school, I would have never imagined being the case. Uh, but um, you know, success begets excitement and intrigue. Uh, hopefully, knock on wood, begets future success. And that's certainly been a little bit of the uh, the catalyst and the journey uh, through the space for me. Thanks for sharing that evolution. It's uh, fascinating to watch your interests. And I think we now recognize just what a ground floor time it is to be in tech bio and what we hope to be the, the making of a century long investment trend. Uh, I'll hand over to my co-host Eric to talk more about a specific topic in this in liquid biopsy. Yeah, so I'd love to shift the conversation to liquid biopsy. And specifically, you were an investor in Thrive Earlier Detection, which got acquired by Exact Sciences um, just a few months ago. Um, this past year also saw Grail's $8 billion acquisition by Illumina and Delphi Diagnostics $100 million Series A. Um, so altogether, it's clear that the liquid biopsy space is really hot right now. Um, so for those in our audience who are not as familiar, can you explain what the forces are at play here that are enabling this, this uh, industry-wide trend to occur? You know, there's a, um, there, there are two underlying scientific trends. One is the ability to capture um, with a high degree of um, selectivity and precision underlying analytes or biomarkers in, um, in human blood that, uh, that could be proxy for uh, various disease states. Um, the other is capturing that data at scale and then applying machine learning uh, or data science to train or regress models that would be predictive of the underlying disease states. Um, again, it's one of those things where, you know, even if you look at the press clippings, it's the machine learning and AI and the data science that gets a lot of the attention. Uh, but if you, if, if you read uh, between the lines, it's really what's making, what's enabling so much of this is the decreasing costs of capturing these biomarkers at scale to actually learn against. Um, and so this is an area we'd spent a long time looking in. We'd been paying attention both to the ability um, to actually capture the underlying molecular signatures, but then also the decreasing costs of, uh, uh, of getting the data at a scale to be able to train and regress models. Um, at a high level, I won't bore you with, with, with why this is important. Um, it's incredibly obvious, even just at a high level, 
that the vast majority of, for example, cancer deaths occur from a small fraction of cancer patients, the patients who have late stage or metastatic cancer. And given that fact, it's also very clear that if you catch the cancers early, if you can't catch the cancers before the tumors have spread, before they're metastatic, you have a three or four X uh, likelihood, a higher likelihood of surviving beyond 10 years. Uh, and so the notion of uh, a liquid biopsy to be able to find these cancers before they're caught symptomatically, before they're caught at a later stage, um, could really drive the ability to acutely um, attack these cancers with existing technologies today, let alone what those existing technology, what those technologies could be like tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think the high level number that's just worth keeping in mind for at least this part of the conversation is just using existing technologies to treat early stage cancer. If we could, if we could biopsy, if we could liquid biopsy and catch metastatic cancer before it's metastatic, it would save about 65,000 lives in the US alone a year. Um, and that's entirely non-trivial. That's obviously a, a huge impact on, on, on human life, but it's also a huge impact on the cost and burden of healthcare on society. Um, so we, we found, and, 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 and we're really excited about Thrive. Uh, again, this is a, a little bit of a, of a longer story, uh, but, um, you know, that Thrive was actually first introduced to us by another one of our founding CEOs, Chris Gibson at Recursion, who had met Thrive's CFO when he was still the lead med tech analyst at Goldman. Um, and, and again, kind of another theme that that'll come back again and again, which is success begets success and good people bring forth more good people. Uh, so surrounding yourself with good people and, 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 and kind of A plus kind of caliber, caliber people early in your investment career pays dividends in the future. Uh, Chris introduced us to Isaac. Isaac left Goldman and became the CFO of Thrive. When Thrive was raising their Series B, we had long been fanboys essentially of Isaac and, and what he was working on. And so we very quickly kind of pinged him and said, hey, look, Lux should be investing here. What's the latest? When we actually did the homework and the diligence, it was abundantly clear that the data coming back from Thrive's uh, studies, which were interventional, which is a level of kind of maturity and, and, and robustness well, well, well far above and beyond really what any other liquid biopsy company has, uh, ha has shown yet, uh, it was stupendous. Uh, it was really exciting. So for us, it was, it was a relatively easy investment decision. Of course, we had no idea that within six months, the company would be acquired for, uh, for a multiple of where the Series B happened. Um, I think as with all acquisitions, it's always a little bit bittersweet. We'll, we'll, we'll look and we'll ask ourselves, should this have been a much, much, much larger public entity over a longer time horizon, or did it make sense to, to, to couple with exact, um, was this a situation where one plus one was more than two? And I think it, rationally speaking, I think it's likely the latter exact brings, um, obviously clinical and, and diagnostic wherewithal, but it also brings an access to capital and to future capital markets that will be required for any company in this space. I look now, especially with Grail and Illumina coupling and Thrive and, and uh, Thrive and Exact coupling, 
And there's, you know, there's Delphi, there's, there, there, there's Freenome, there are a number of other liquid biopsy companies. I think this space is going to become increasingly competitive. Um, I wonder how capital markets will be able to distinguish between the various players because the, the differences at this point become um, pretty specific from a technological and, and, and scientific perspective. Uh, but I think ultimately us as, uh, as citizens, we will all be the beneficiaries uh, of these sciences. And certainly I expect on a, you know, within a five to 10 year horizon, the vast majority of folks in the US over, over 45 will get annual blood draws to screen for early and mid-stage cancer. And we should see a rapid diminishing or a decrease of, uh, of metastatic or late stage cancer deaths as we're able to fight and work. So Zavid, can you explain to us what life looks like in a post-liquid biopsy world for patients, uh, clinicians, and other stakeholders? You know, for the audience out there, I would ask you to metaphorically raise your hand if you know somebody or are aware of somebody who's been diagnosed for the first time with stage three or stage four cancer. And then if you've had or heard the news from them or from their providers and doctors and caretakers that there's a six to 18 month timeline before they pass. Um, and that event, that horrific uh, uh, conversation should frankly never occur. All of those mid and late stage cancers at some point were pre-metastatic and if these sciences and these technologies and the, especially these liquid biopsies, if they end up being successful, they should be able to track and capture these cancers before they're at that stage. And the toolkits or the vast majority of the toolkits or good majority of the toolkits exist today to target acutely those cancers at an earlier stage. So it really is fundamentally transformative. This isn't a cure for late stage cancer, it's saying, how do we get to a world where late stage cancer never occurs? And so again, it's one of those things where when we talk about drug discovery, so many of the, again, the very cool and interesting and beautiful therapeutic approaches to late stage cancer, cell and gene therapy, IO, uh, immuno-oncology, these are all great ways to fight and to ward off metastatic or late stage cancer. But this is almost a zig to the zag, which is saying, how do we get to a world, or can we approach a world where late stage cancer never occurs? In this kind of 10 year out vision where everybody over 45 is getting, are getting annual blood draws to appropriately track any risk of early stage cancer, and then doing whatever they can at that moment in time to ward off or to acutely treat the early stage cancer, wards off or it stiff arms uh, uh, from, I guess, a football analogy, um, any potential uh, for that, you know, phase three, uh, stage three or, or, or stage four metastatic cancer. Um, and so that's a really powerful future. Um, it's, it's, it, it obviously, I, I get shivers thinking about it and then it sounds so, um, it almost sounds so hyperbolic in, in, in nature, given, given the impact that cancer has on society today, but I think it, it's going to happen within the next 10 to 15 years and certainly within our lifetime. And that's incredibly exciting. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And I also got shivers there. So <laughs> that was wild. Chaz, I'll pass it off to you. 
Thanks, Eric. Um, and Zavin, kind of another area that really kind of holds a promise to reinvent the future of medicine is, is tech-enabled drug discovery. Uh, it's crazy to say, if you think about it in a perfect world, you can identify a target, find a hit, optimize a lead, and go through perfectly correlating preclinical studies. And by the time you take a drug to the clinic, you have the utmost confidence that the drug will be safe, effective, and ultimately approved. Like blockbuster, what nuts, that's insane. Um, and you've thought about a lot about this space and made some investments here in recursion, onogenics, lab genius, amongst others. Can you talk about kind of what gets you excited about uh, tech-enabled drug discovery and some of the, these companies in particular? You know, it's, um, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet in this podcast, but I spent time advising the 76ers on kind of machine learning and Moneyball as it applies to basketball, both as it applies to, you know, how the, you know, your, the five players on the court should be playing, whether to shoot more threes, take more layups, try to get to the line more often, how to play defense, but then also how to value and, uh, uh, and, and track and trade players or draft players. Um, and for me, that time in the league was a really interesting for twofold. One, I love basketball and in many ways it was, you know, the closest hour I'll ever have to being the equivalent of an adult in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Uh, the other was, it was so interesting just to, just to realize the main bottleneck for progress and how those teams are often run is less so technology or science or data. It's more so cultural inertia and stigma. And one of the interesting things, at least about basketball and sports, I would say writ large is at least there's a humility that I think both internal and external uh, decision makers in sports realize, look, we're not necessarily the smartest men and women in the world, at least from a machine learning and, and, and data science perspective, let's bring in outside help to help us kind of make better decisions. Um, one of the really interesting, and I would say dangerous from an industry perspective, uh, realizations that I've had as I've spent more and more time investing and building in biotech and pharma is that that humility of there's something we can learn from data and software interoperability and, 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 and machine learning and AI doesn't exist or is, is it's, it's harder to access in pharma. It's happening. And every year, I think there's an increasingly, um, it's, it's increasingly impossible to deny machine learning and data science and software's role in the future of drug discovery and drug development. But there's a lot of intellectual hubris um, uh, from, from key decision makers across pharma. And um, the way I kind of think about it, and I, I wrote a piece on this, I think last year, uh, which had a lot of, um, <laughs> I think interesting responses, was if you ask everybody in Manhattan, there's about 3 million people in Manhattan, I think. If you ask everybody in Manhattan to flip a quarter 10 times. The vast, vast, vast majority of them will get, you know, some random distribution, probably on average five, five heads and five tails, but a small number of them just statistically will end up getting 10 straight heads. And if you ask them, wow, can you do this again? You must be really good at quarter flipping. 
no one would say I'm really good at quarter flipping if they happen to get 10 straight heads. They would just say, wow, I can't believe I got 10 straight heads. That's a freak occurrence. It'll never happen again. But in pharma, if you look at the historical success rates of drugs going through development and going into the clinic, the vast majority of them fail. It really is statistically pretty random what is successful and what is not. But the there's an associated Midas touch with the pharmaceutical research organizations and the decision makers who happen to get lucky. The drug and hunters, if you will. The drug hunters. And there's very little space to say or to even acknowledge the role that maybe they were closer to John Doe down the street in Manhattan who, who got 10 straight heads rather than the guy in Vegas who's just really good at flipping quarters, if that analogy makes much sense. And so like that realization is also our, you know, that's, that's, that's the cultural arbitrage against that's, that's the backdrop and the setting against which we have the opportunity to build these companies that do try to remove human ego and hubris from these, uh, uh, from these kind of milieu of decisions that need to be made from target discovery to composition of matter to, uh, to candidate selection, to trial design, uh, and, and ultimately to phase three and, and, and phase four of commercial development. Um, but that's the opportunity frankly, at a large level. I think if you take a snapshot of the top 10 of pharma on a market cap basis today, and if we came back here in maybe call it 15 years, because the patents on, 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 on the revenue streams are long, but if, if you wait 15 years, I suspect the top 10 will look very different. We might have one or two of the same companies. I think the vast majority, seven, eight, nine of them will be entirely new names. And I think they're going to be names of the companies that we're backing and we're building today because they're built from the bottoms up, incorporating data interoperability uh, and, 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 and using unbiased machine learning uh, and, and really just statistics to guide decisions at every step of the process. Um, there's a reason why Blockbuster couldn't become Netflix. There's a reason why this is almost you know cheesy to say there's a reason why the yellow cab industry couldn't develop Uber. But that reason is even more pronounced in pharma, where there, where the, the complexity of what those organizations are already doing and the associated hubris and ego and, 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 and cultural inertia is so much more pronounced that it's almost impossible to ask those large organizations to do things fundamentally in a different way. So it'll take time again, because the IP streams of these companies, the, the, the monopoly on their revenue streams are long and enduring, but over time they will get outclassed by this set of really nimble, really intelligent and wildly fundamentally different in terms of how they operate, in terms of how they execute companies that are being made today. Um, so Alvin, I think we can definitely say we share the enthusiasm and echo the sentiment that what is hundred billion dollar biotech companies can be can be made and created in these in these times. And as you're saying, the top ten pharma companies, I think we're redrawing the lines, and that could look dramatically different in the not too distant future. Uh, and as we talk about this, I think there's some exciting opportunities, um, especially as we're seeing on the science side, just as much innovation there as we are on the business side now. Uh, can you talk about kind of go to market strategy and explain? Uh, the company journey for what is the next wave of tech bio platform companies. You know, there, there, there's two slices I want to take at this. 
One is, you know, we tend to invest in um, uh, platform companies, whether it's a uh, Zymogen or an Anagenics, a Calliope, a Cajal, a, a, a Recursion. Those are all, I think, exemplar uh, of, of those companies. But then we tend to, at times, I think, almost forget the technology of science. Um, and a, a really kind of beautiful example uh, of a company in this space, uh, which we wrongfully passed on in, in, in prior rounds is a company Benchling. And that company you know, creates tools and applications for lab scientists and biologists, both in research and academia, but then also in biotech and pharma. And um, for so long, you know, we, I think, scoffed and said there's, you know, each of these attempts in a one-off manner that we're building uh, in terms of a verticalized platform are so difficult. And sure, those companies are using Benchling, but how big is that market really? And I think at this point, they're, one of the interesting secular trends that's occurring is the increasing strategic scope and decision-making autonomy and authority that a millennial class of life scientists and practitioners in biotech and pharma have. And, and that millennial class are used to and expect world-class software tools. They don't wanna be uh, uh, hamstrung by clunky on-prem, uh, you know, biological or chemical toolkits of yore. And, and so Benchlink is, I think has really beautifully ridden exactly that wave and integrated to become a standard uh, and necessary piece of uh, piece of the early stage discovery process for biologists, um, but is only just beginning. And, and, and it really has, uh, I, I would say a, you know, a hundred billion, you know, opportunity uh, in front of it. And that's, that's just kind of an interesting kind of adjacency that we hadn't yet discussed, but I want to make sure we do because I, I think it's just an interesting angle. And it's one, frankly, where we were wrong early on and not acknowledging it or feeling like maybe our companies were in some sense special that they needed benchling like technologies, but other pharmaceutical orgs wouldn't. I think the writing is on the wall at this point. At this point. Um, the, the other kind of interpretation, Chaz, of your question, which is really kind of how is the business of biotech itself innovating? Um, you know, it, it Historically, I think biotech has been a, a, bit, a bit of a pendulum uh, where it's swung back and forth from broad and ambitious platform plays to much more narrow, narrowly defined single asset or single target plays. And I'd say until probably the last two or three years, the last decade plus before that had been, had been the latter. It had been narrowly defined single target, single asset uh, plays which were almost built either for small or mid-cap mid IPO to eventually be acquired or to be acquired pre-IPO. Um, and one of the bets we made early in building these tech bio companies is that they would fundamentally have to look different. When you're innovating on a platform level, not on a target or composition of matter level, you don't have a single target you can point to until much later in the company's tenure, more often than not. And so it's, you do need to access more capital, but if you're successful, you've developed an engine 
that can spit off with a high degree of accuracy, very high value assets uh, at an increasing cadence over time. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Um, you know, there was a, there's been a lot of ink spilt over the last probably three or four or five months in terms of how hot the biotech market is. But if you look at where that capital is going, the capital isn't going towards single target or single asset plays. It's going towards much more ambitious and, and broad um, intersectional platforms. I think there's fundamentally two twofold reasons for why that's happening. One, again, we're sitting at a moment in time where, you know, the um, union of these underlying life science toolkits plus automation plus software plus machine learning are emerging and making themselves amenable to backing these platform plays. The other is just a top-down capital market spaces, which is, I think, capital markets. One of the things I maybe didn't appreciate in my earlier years in venture was just how much of an educational process there is to always be one step ahead and to always inform future and downstream investors as to what you're doing. And right now we're seeing, I think for the first time, at least in my career, the eyes opening up of the, of the late stage crossover mutual fund and ultimately the public buyers as to the potential of what these companies can be. And there's increasing appetite and exposure and awareness and sophistication from those buyers as to what these companies will be. And that's really kind of enabling these playbooks uh, to shift in real time uh, before us as to how to build these companies. And to put a bow around that, Zavin, uh, we're talking a lot about kind of biotech and tech bio in the switch thereof. What do you think this tipping point looks like to you? On a I think it's already happened. And I'm not sure if the vocabulary or the nomenclature will ever catch up to the reality. It might forever be called biotech. But certainly, if you look at the most interesting new codes being spun up or founded, or if you look even at the companies that are raising seed series A, series Bs, not only from Silicon Valley investors, but also quite frankly, from biotech investors, all of those companies today have as a third pillar next to biology and chemistry, they have as a third pillar software and machine learning. And there's simply just no way you can build a company in this space today, totally ignoring software. Five or six years ago, the vast majority of companies totally ignored software. Software was for the IT team and the website. It was not for the core development or discovery process. Today, it's quite frankly, it's impossible to build a company or to get financing if you don't have that as a core pillar. And so I think that chasm has been crossed. It's really exciting along, you know, along with that chasm, there's so many problems that get, how do you finance these companies? What are the strategic KPIs? How do you have the software team talk to the chemistry team, talk to the biology team, talk to the pharma team? There's so, you know, it, it, it becomes a multilingual, multi-parameter problem building these companies and setting them up for success. But we're not going back that, you know, I think the, um, you know, the, the, the secrets out of the bag in terms of the potential of these companies. And so, um, whether it's vernacularly accepted as tech bio, 
it's it's already here. So if we're not looking back, then let's look forward here. Is the future biotech, tech bio in 2050? Where will we be? I think the vast majority of human diseases by 2050 will be imminently treatable. And whether that's a rare disease, a complex disease, um, a chronic condition, um, a hereditary disease, we will have not only the underlying biological sophistication and understanding, but then also the ability to modulate across the various therapeutic modalities to treat with highly increased accuracy those diseases. It's incredible. Like if, if you're a child being born today, by the time you're 30 in 2050, you in theory, I don't think we'll have to worry about a lot of the human conditions and diseases that those of us who are, you know, in our 30s and 40s and 50s plus today think about and worry about. But I think the pace of science and certainly the pace of technology coming into these disciplines, again, thinking about it from a earlier point of our conversation, big O notation, thinking about the uh, the order of magnitude of how these functions grow and co-evolve, I think we will be there by 2050. I actually think by that point, biology will have lent itself not only to perturbing and understanding and modulating human health, but also towards underlying, also towards other industries, whether that's DNA for storage of data or uh, hijacking and hacking underlying enzymatic activity to proxy computations um, in a cheap and efficient manner, uh, or hacking, you know, uh, brain organoids for even AI. Again, this is many years into the future, but you know, I, I think again, it's a little bit cheesy to say, but I think you know, this will be the century where biology unlocks more market value and more potential than any other discipline, including IT, including machine learning, including software. Could not agree more. Uh, I, I really truly think we're going through what we call the, the bioindustrial age as we speak. And uh, this century is gonna be a powerful um, force for good in terms of a brighter, better future on the impact of patients. And as you mentioned, kind of children being born in this era, uh, it very well may be, there's a Peter Diamantis coined term, longevity escape velocity. For every year that we are alive as humans, our life expectancy increases for greater than a year in that yep. case. And who very well may know, the 21st century just might unlock that for us. What exciting times ahead. And an incredible time to be at this intersection of technology and biology. Um, yeah, Eric, absolutely, abs absolutely incredible. And I think we just had what I would describe as a fantastic view of what the future looks like in biotech and for the rest of humanity. Um, with that in mind, um, what needs to happen today in order to achieve that vision of the future? Um, and more specifically, do you have any calls for startups to help build that reality? You know, I, I think there's a, there's an inordinate 
weight and burden on the leading companies today, whether it's the, not just to solely look at the Lux portfolio, the Incitros, the Celerities, the Recursions and Calliopes and Cajals of the world to prove success. At this point, those companies have raised enough, they have enough eyeballs on their back. Their success or failures will dictate what the next decades of financiers and investors will be willing to stomach. And so if these companies are successful, which I truly believe they will be, then I think capital markets will unlock themselves and enable an accelerated pull of this future. If they stumble, if they go sideways, if they make the wrong strategic decisions, then I think it will leave, again, historical baggage, scar tissue, investor PTSD that will be really hard to come back from. And it's the same sort of PTSD that I talk about, you know, the, the failures of, um, of supercompute in CombiCam in the 90s and early 2000s that has hamstrung pharma's ability to get in front of the wheel in integrating technology and science and software and machine learning into their discovery and development process. We risk that happening again. And so I look at the leading companies in this space today and the responsibility they have is not only to their shareholders and not only to their employees and not only frankly, you know, in terms of what they can and will become, but the responsibility they have is to prove out success of these models because that unlocks future capital for every other innovator in this space. So that's probably first and foremost. And, you know, I, you know, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Um, the second is for entrepreneurs and investors to really take time to do the homework and understand what they're building and understand what they're financing. Um, again, we're still, I would say, in the second or third innings of this revolution. And the last thing we want is to have a, uh, is to give up a, you know, uh, seven runs in the bottom half of the second inning, if, if this analogy makes sense. And, 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 and seven runs in the bottom half of the second inning here would be a series of horrible investments, a series of um, charlatan founders, uh, a series of companies that shouldn't be funded and or are making the wrong strategic decisions because either the entrepreneurs and or the investors are driven by FOMO. Uh, and so I think it's a call to arms to investors broadly to do their homework and a call to entrepreneurs to also do their homework, to not get seduced by what they think will be a, a, a quick hit or an easy path, but to really understand what they're signing themselves up for and to realize that their success and failure not only is going to be their success and failure, but will have and carry stigma for the broader industry. Could not agree thank, more there. Thank you, Zavin, for just what a magical hour this has been. Uh, the ins and outs of what is truly a magic, magical time for our industry and such a leading perspective you have. Thanks for sharing with our audience. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to share uh, as you wrap up around this just wonderful conversation? No, thank you guys so much for having me. And um, it was a pleasure. It was, it was really fun chatting about this. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.